Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you, Brother Dylan, and good afternoon, brethren. We are very familiar with the passage in Matthew 24, where Christ warns us to take heed, lest we be deceived. I want to go to that scripture, but before we do, I want to open in Deuteronomy 11, where Brother Andrew was, because I think that many of us, being Christians, believe that we cannot be deceived, and yet Christ was very adamant, warning us not to be deceived, and so I think we need to be careful about being overconfident and then understanding how can we ensure that we are not deceived. I want to show you from God's word that the defense that we have against deception is the whole counsel of God, that we have to understand the whole scripture, that if we only understand part of the scripture, while that part might be true, if we don't have the whole picture, we can be deceived. In Deuteronomy 11, which is what Christ was alluding to when he said, don't be deceived in Matthew 24. So we want to keep Deuteronomy 11 in mind when we go to Matthew 24. We'll get there eventually. But here in verse 12, that the focus of God is on the land. This particular plot of real estate that God wants to give to his people. And notice here in verse 12 that it is a piece of real estate that God himself personally cares for. So of all the places on the earth, this is a part of the earth that God personally cares for. And this is the plot of land that he wants to give to his people. And he says here, the eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. So God cares about the earth. And he cares about a particular piece of real estate on the earth. So we can't forget this as we go deeper into the Bible. And then he tells the children of Israel as they're inheriting this land that they are to hearken diligently to his word. And notice in verse 16, which is what Christ was quoting in Matthew 24, take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. So from the very beginning, God was concerned that his people would, would fall prey to deception. And in doing so, serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath would be kindled against them. The antidote to deception is here in verse 18. So God wants to give them the land. To stay in the land, they have to obey him. They need to be careful not to be deceived so that they don't end up worshiping other gods. And the antidote to all of that is here in verse 18. Therefore, shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul. This is the antidote to deception. To lay up the words of God in our heart and in our soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. 
and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates, that your days may be multiplied. So the warning to take heed against deception is coupled with the antidote to deception. And the antidote to deception is God's word. That when we understand God's word, that's when we are able to resist deception. Let's see this at work in Luke 4. So the instruction to Israel was to take the words of God and bind them to their forehead, to their arms, teach them to their children, never let go, make sure their, their heart is full of the word of God. Let's see this in action in Luke 4. In verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit when he returned from Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted by the devil. So there was nonstop attempts by the devil to deceive Christ. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterwards he was hungry. Verse 3, the devil said unto him, If you be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So hold your place here, and turn with me to Deuteronomy 8, which is what Christ used to withstand the deception of the devil. And it was a very subtle deception. You're hungry. Well, if you're the son of God and you're valued by God, go ahead and command that this stone be made bread. And Christ's defense was to quote Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. And he humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. So Christ had the counsel of God's word. And as Israel was in the wilderness 40 years, Christ was in the wilderness for 40 days to symbolize the same struggle, the same path. Where they failed, he succeeded. And he succeeded because he followed the instruction to have the words of God, the whole counsel of God in his heart. So we don't know how, how, how the devil is going to strike at us but this, there's a scriptural answer for it. If we neglect our study, we won't have the answer. If we're immersed in God's word, as God told us to, to do, then whatever the attack is, we can withstand it with scripture. Back to Luke 4. We're going to go back and forth with Luke and Deuteronomy. Luke 4, verse 5. And the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world, in a moment of time. And remember in Deuteronomy, there's a particular plot of land that God cares for. But here Satan is showing him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give you, and the glory of them. For that's delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If you therefore will worship me, everything will be yours. And Jesus answered and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written. Same thing. He's got the word of God in his heart. So now he knows which scripture to withstand the devil with. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So here he was recalling 
what is written in Deuteronomy 6. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. We'll come back to Luke 4. Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall swear by his name. And then in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Him shall you serve. And to him shall you cleave and swear by his name. So Christ had these scriptures to say, no, what you're, you're, you're misleading me. This is what the scripture says. Back to Luke 4 for the final temptation. And he brought him in verse 9 to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, if you be the son of God, cast yourself down from here. For it is written. So now he is saying, hey, this is what the scripture says. Okay, you want to talk about scripture? Well, the scripture says, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against the stone. So Satan had knowledge of scripture, presented that scripture to Christ to tempt him to disobey God. But Christ had a greater knowledge of the scripture. He had a broader knowledge of the scripture. So he was able to, again, withstand Satan with this scripture. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. He's quoting here Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16, he says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. So Christ came to be the perfect Israelite, to live by every word of God. And in order to do that, he had to know every word of God. And because he knew every word of God, and that was in his heart, no matter what, and was, this is, these are three, we don't know what happened over the 40 days. But no matter what Satan threw at him, he constantly had the scriptural response to it so that he could act according to God's will. Now, it's interesting, in Luke 4, verse 8, the particular answer that Christ gave to Satan was to get behind me. So he said to Satan in Luke 4, verse 8, get behind me, Satan. That should ring a bell. We've, we've heard that before. And let's go to Mark 8. Mark 8. He says here, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So don't get into idolatry. And the temptation to idolatry, Christ's response to that was, get behind me. I, I have nothing to do with idolatry. I only want to serve God. And yet he has the same response, get behind me, Satan, in Mark 8. In Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be tortured. This is what he's teaching his disciples. And to be rejected from the elders. So he'll be despised by the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and then be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spoke that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Don't, don't say this. This is wrong. 
But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. So there's a link here in what he's saying to Peter with the temptation from the devil. The devil was saying, basically, worship yourself. If you're the son of God, then you should be prioritized. And his response to that was, get behind me, Satan. I'm only going to work worship God. So here the same response is telling us that Peter's reaction to the teaching that Christ must be destroyed in Jerusalem was idolatry. Peter was saying, no, 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 that can't happen to you. You can't suffer like this. And in a sense saying, you must, as Satan was saying to Christ, you are, you're of such high value that no matter what happens, God has to protect you. And God says, no, don't tempt God. And let's only worship God. So Christ said, whatever happens to me is irrelevant as long as God is worshipped and God's will is fulfilled. In fact, what happens, I shouldn't say irrelevant, it's very relevant that Christ be destroyed according to the scriptures so that God's will can be fulfilled. To try to deviate from that is to, is to try to frustrate God's will, which is what Satan wants to do. So by tempting God or tempting Christ to put himself first, what Peter was doing was falling into Satan's trap, which is an invitation to idolatry. And all of us can do this. God has a will, and we have a will. And all of us can fall into the temptation of wanting to be important and wanting to exert our will over God's. And Christ's response to this is, get behind me, Satan. I will not exert my will over God's. God's will must be done. Why? He says this. For you, Peter, under the influence of the devil, you do not savor the things that be of God. You do not savor the things that be of God, but things, but the things that be of men. And this is the question for us now. If we are not to be idolaters, if we are not to be deceived, this is the question that we must answer. What do we savor? What do we treasure? What do we value? The things of God or the things of men? What, what is our perspective? What's our point of view on our lives? If we have to suffer, is that the worst thing that could possibly happen? And God has to move heaven and earth so that we don't suffer? Or if we have to suffer according to the will of God, are we good with that? Are we able to say, so be it. God's will be done. As long as ultimately God's will is being fulfilled, our suffering is just part of the package. Because we savor the things of God. And then he says here, and when he had called the people unto him, verse 34, with his disciples also. So he says unto all of them, including the disciples, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Stop being an idolater. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop thinking that everything revolves around you. And instead, understand that it is God that is the center. And God's will that is the center. So if, you're go, if we're going to be Christians, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Because there's a bigger picture. There's, there's understanding the whole counsel of God. And so he goes on to say, whoever shall save his life will, will lose it. 
and whoever will lose his life for his sake shall save it. Verse 36, for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So we are not God. And so what does it profit if we have everything to worship ourselves and then we lose our soul in the end? Now, this question, or he says, get behind me, Satan. Imagine that. You're a disciple of Christ. You're learning from him. He's teaching you. You value your master. You value your rabbi. And then when he says, look, I'm going to be despised. I'm going to be rejected. And I'm going to be destroyed. And then you say, no, no, stop saying these things. And then he looks at you after looking at all the other disciples. And he says to you, get behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things of God. You savor the things of men. So this is the question we have to ask ourselves. What do we savor? The things of God or the things of man? And, and I think we have to look at Psalm 137 to get a sense of what God savors. What does God care about? And do we care about the same things as God? Or are we on the human plane and we just care about things related to human life? Throughout the whole Bible, it's very clear what God cares about. And here, King David has this psalm in 137 that reveals what's in his heart. Here in Psalm 137, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. So they've been taken captive by the Babylonians. And here they are now weeping when they're remembering where they were taken from. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the the midst thereof. So they were no longer willing to play the music. They hung their harps up. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. So they're asking these Jews, play your music for us. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Listen to the response in verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? David understood that there's a specific plot of land that God cares for, that he wants to give to his people. But now they've been taken out of that land according to the covenant, that they had to obey God to stay in the land, but they disobeyed him, so they've been taken out of the land. And David's saying, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Understanding that God wants his people in his land. If I, this is the part now, what we savor. What did David savor? Verse 5. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning or her craft. So whatever it is we do for a living, if we forget Jerusalem, let us be impoverished. Let whatever skill, whatever ability we have to make a living, let it disappear. If we ever forget Jerusalem. David savors what God savors. God cares for this particular plot of land. If I do not remember you, that's Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. So I I, I cannot speak. There's no way that I can sing. I'm completely useless if I forget Jerusalem. 
If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. What about us? God cares for this land. And his whole agenda is around this land. What's in our heart? Do we care about Jerusalem? Do we care about God's plan for Jerusalem? Do we say that whatever our greatest joy is, Jerusalem needs to be above that joy? Because we really do understand what God is doing on the earth. This grand narrative, when we understand the whole Bible, he says here, let's go to Isaiah 41. There's one story that the Bible tells. And when we understand it, the entire scripture makes sense. We can go anywhere in the Bible and it's all telling the same story. And... The reason that story holds, that the story was told in the beginning, in Genesis, and it holds throughout the entire Bible all the way to Revelation. And the reason it holds is because God says, I'm the first and the last. It's me. I'm the first and the last. So God, from the very beginning, from ancient times, he can declare what's going to happen at the end. And nobody can stop it because he's God. He's the only one that can do this. He's the only Alpha and Omega. So from the beginning, he can say what's going to happen at the end. And the whole thread of the Bible and the whole thread of human history follows the declaration of God. He says here in Isaiah 41 and verse 26, who has declared from the beginning? From the, who has done this? Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? So God is challenging all the false gods with his declaration. Find another. God is saying, I challenge you to find another God that can declare the end from the beginning. So prophecy is the proof of God. That you don't want to believe that there's a God, okay, or you believe that there's God or gods, but you don't believe in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible puts out this challenge. Find another God that from the beginning can declare the end. He says, who has declared from the beginning that we may know? And before time that we may say, oh, he is righteous. Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Yes, there is none that hears your words. Verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, behold, behold them. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good news. So understanding God's plan for Jerusalem has everything to do with the proof that God is God. That if we neglect Jerusalem, if we forget Jerusalem, we are destroying the very argument that God puts out to say, I'm the true God. I'm the, the proof that I'm the true God is my plan for Jerusalem. So if we forget Jerusalem, we are diluting, destroying the very argument God puts out to say, bring all the other gods and see which of them declares the end from the beginning, as I do. 
So we need to understand, brethren, that the plan of God does not revolve around us. And this is, if I can say it this way, let's see if I can find the right words. Well, I'll just say this. This is the deception of Christianity. That Christians are deceived. They were deceived from the very beginning when the Greek philosophers took over. And they made it about themselves. And they completely took all the words of God and gave them different meaning. And, and re- erased the Hebraic foundation of the faith. That if that Hebraic foundation stayed, we would realize that the, the plan is the same from the beginning. And it has everything to do with Jerusalem. But here we've, we've been in, influenced by this Greco-Macedonian, Greco-Roman Christianity to think that, oh, this, this calling is about us. We're so special. God has given us his Holy Spirit, and now it's all about us. As opposed to saying, God has given his, us his Holy Spirit out of season, mind you, out of season. We are the first fruits. The very fact that we're called the first fruits tells you it's not about us. You, you would never have a first fruit harvest and say, wonderful, this is it. There's no other harvest. The first fruits harvest is just an indication that God has blessed us and the real harvest is coming. So the, it's not about the first fruits harvest. The first fruits harvest is an indication that the harvest is coming. So the fact that we are first fruits, we are an indication of what God is bringing about. And yet there are many who teach that it's all about us. And this is a form of arrogance that Satan taps into to deceive us. Let's see this in Matthew 23. When we understand the whole plan of God, we cannot be deceived. When Satan wants us to feel sorry for ourselves, we won't fall for that. Because we'll understand that we're part of a grand mission. This, this mission is so big, and God has recruited us out of season to help him with this mission. So we are helpers with the mission. And the mission revolves around Jerusalem. And throughout the whole Bible, it's about this. Matthew 23 and verse 34. He's speaking to those in Jerusalem. And he says, Therefore, behold... I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. His focus is on Jerusalem. He's sending prophets to Jerusalem. He's sending wise men to Jerusalem. He's sending scribes to Jerusalem. He himself was focused to go to Jerusalem. And some of them you shall kill and crucify. And some of them you shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Why? that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. So quite a curse that God is putting on these religious leaders in Jerusalem. Truly I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. From the very beginning, God has cared for this piece of real estate. 
and nothing has changed. There is a will that he has for this piece of real estate and for his people to be in this piece of real estate, and it's just not working out. And God is lamenting over Jerusalem. He's saying here, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that killed the prophets and stoned them which are sent to you, how often I would have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And right here in this verse, we see the will of God. Jerusalem is going to be severely punished, but not forsaken. Jerusalem is going to be desolate, but not destroyed. Because he says, your house is left unto you desolate, But then he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So after reading Matthew 23 and how evil these people are, how wicked Jerusalem has become, God is declaring that in the end, Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will say God is blessed. They're going to look at Jesus Christ and say he is blessed that comes. So there's some sort of conversion that is indicated right here in verse 39. That despite all of the wickedness, there is a conversion in Jerusalem that God is going to bring about because from the very beginning, that has been his will. And he declares from ancient times that there will be singing and joy in the streets of Jerusalem. That Jerusalem will be the headquarters of the whole world. From ancient times, he says, the whole world is going to come to Jerusalem to learn of God. And he's indicating here the conversion of Jerusalem will take place upon his return. Let's now follow the story of this conversion of Jerusalem. Let's go to Isaiah 1. So again, we want to see, we want to see things the way God sees them. That the world doesn't revolve around us. It revolves around God's will. And anybody who wants the world to revolve around them, God says to them, get behind me, Satan, because he came to do the Father's will. And we're now recruited to help with the Father's will. So here in Isaiah 1 and verse 1, Isaiah, this book, and hopefully you're able to join us in the weekly studies, but this book here in the right out of the gate, verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of Isaiah is concerning the vision that Isaiah had concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's what Isaiah is about. So if we keep that in mind, everything we read in Isaiah is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we can't take the words of Isaiah and apply it to America, apply it to Australia, apply it to Britain. He tells us right here, this vision is about Judah and Jerusalem. So we need to be very careful as we're reading this book that we stay with what he's telling us. So concerning Judah and Jerusalem, if we go to chapter 3, we see exactly what Christ was saying. Christ had the words of God in his heart. He knew them intimately. And so he marches to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he tells them what Isaiah told them. Here in Isaiah 3 and verse 8, Jerusalem is ruined. This is the vision that Isaiah had. That this beautiful city, the people of God, he's saying Jerusalem is ruined. 
and Judah has fallen. Because of their tongue, their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. That's exactly what Christ was saying in Matthew 23. Your, 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 your doings are against God, and so you're ruined. Your house is left to you desolate. This is what Isaiah sees for Jerusalem. And yet if we go to chapter 30, he sees something else. Isaiah 30 and verse 18, he says, And therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. So this is when Christ suddenly pivots and says, You won't see me again until you say, You are going to say this. You of Jerusalem, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And so here he's saying, God is going to be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted. So God will be exalted when he's gracious to his people. That he may have mercy upon you, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. So there's going to be a conversion in Jerusalem. The gospel is going to be preached to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they're going to be waiting upon the Lord. And they're going to be blessed. Verse 19. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. This is what God is declaring. So we have to watch Jerusalem. It's going to be in the news, and the people are going to be desolate. They're going to be wiped out in Jerusalem. But the God of the universe is saying, don't let that fool you. I've declared from the beginning that Jerusalem will be inhabited. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious unto you at the voice of your cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer you. So when they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he will answer them. Verse 20. And though the Lord give you, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Isaiah is concerning Jerusalem, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not your teachers be removed into a corner any more but your eyes shall see your teachers. So who are these teachers? And who are they teaching? Again, we are the first fruits called out of season to help God. We are going to help God. And so when, we are, when Christ returns, we will be born into his family, and our focus will be the same focus as God. God is coming with a focus on Jerusalem. And with a focus on the people of Jerusalem to make them the head, to make Judah the head nation of the whole earth. That everybody on planet earth is going to say, the law comes out of Zion. You know what? We, we need to go to Zion. Let's pack our bags and let's go to Zion so that we can learn the law of God. So there's going to be a head nation on the earth and God is going to do that. And we are going to help him do that. And we are going to teach these people that have suffered the adversity of, and, and the affliction of God's wrath, we're going to teach them God's ways. And as human beings, they will be part of the head nation of the earth. And your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. So this is not all mankind, with teachers telling them this is the way. This is the Jews. 
with the Jews having teachers to make sure that they understand the will of God so that they can teach it to everybody else. Chapter 41. In verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not, I will help you. This is, this is what God is saying, that no one else can do this. No one else can declare from ancient times what's going to happen in the future in detail. And this is what God is saying. That I care for this piece of land, and I, and I have a covenant with the people that I'm going to put in this land, and I'm going to make sure that everything that I've spoken happens. And so here he says, I'm going to help you, verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. So he refers to Jacob as a worm, meaning Jacob is completely defenseless. Jacob has nothing to defend himself. And the people are going to surround him and slaughter him. And God is saying, don't be afraid. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So God is known as the Holy One of Israel that's why there has to be an Israel. When Jerusalem is surrounded and everybody wants to completely slaughter the remnant of Israel, God is saying it won't happen. Because eternally, I will be known as the Holy One of Israel. And therefore, there has to be an eternal Israel. And he goes on to say how he's going to empower Israel to fight against those that fight against him. So, do we savor the things of God? Is Jerusalem on our heart? When we turn on the news and we see what's happening in the Holy Land, does it break our heart the way it does God's? Or do we turn on the news, see what's happening in Jerusalem, turn off the news, and then just think about ourselves? The Holy Spirit should be empowering us to think like God. That our heart should be like God's heart. And what we want is the whole earth to know that the God of the universe dwells in Zion, dwells in Jerusalem. What mitigates against that is this human nature that we all have. That surely, surely, nothing important happened in the earth until I was born. Surely. And surely nothing will happen in the future without me. So therefore, when I come into Christianity, it's very easy to figure this thing out. Christ died for me. And Christ has a plan for the future for me. This is so easy. What's so difficult to understand? So God is calling us to fight against this nature. To stop worshipping ourselves. To stop being idolaters. To stop falling into Satan's trick. It's the same trick of saying, if you be the son of God, then surely you're the most important thing to God. And everything has to revolve around you. God warns us against this in Luke 12. Let's go to Luke 12. In Luke 12 and verse 1, he says here, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they tread one upon another, 
That's when he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware you of the leaven of the Pharisees. So he's teaching these disciples and he's doing these miracles and healing people and helping people of Israel. And then all of a sudden, these crowds just start to follow him. He becomes very popular. And when there are so many people following him, he begins to teach his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he tells us what it is, which is hypocrisy. And I'm going to say that hypocrisy is idolatry. And that's what Satan tried to deceive Christ into, hypocrisy. Where Christ says, I worship God, but then he puts himself first. That's hypocrisy. And that's idolatry. And this is the temptation that Satan is trying to deceive us with. We worship God. Oh yes, God is everything to me. But the moment we are offended or hurt or persecuted, suddenly it's clear who's first. This is hypocrisy. And this is why Christ said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because Christ was not a hypocrite. God really was first. He says, verse 2, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Everything's going to come out. Everything. Everything. So let's conduct our lives in such a way that when it comes out, it's not opposite to who and what we said we are. We never said we were perfect. All we said is God is first in our lives. And if, if that's true, then God is going to bless us. If we say God is first in our lives, but actually we're first in our lives, this is going to be exposed. Therefore, whatever you've spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which you have spoken in the ear, in the closets, shall be proclaimed upon the housetops. He's speaking to his disciples, saying, be careful. Be careful. Don't, don't be double-minded. Don't have a double life. And I say unto you, my friends, so again, the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. And I say unto you, my friends, don't be afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. So if we are hypocrites and we really worship ourselves, we will be terrified of them that can kill the body. Because our God is ourself. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And if you're aware of that and you're, you're weary of that and you don't allow that to get inside you, you will not be afraid. Because God is first. So he tells us, I'll tell you who to be afraid of. Fear him. That is God. Put him first. And then he goes on to say, look, you're valued. Verse 7, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, therefore. Trust God. You're more value than many sparrows. So don't, don't um, allow Satan to give you a false sense of value. Really understand your true value. And verse 8, whoever will confess me before men, him shall I confess Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. So there's something about confessing Christ before men, angry men, 
uh, hateful men, powerful men, that says we put God first. We are not idolaters. And we are not afraid of men. And so it doesn't matter who the man is. We are going to tell them that Christ is God. Because we understand. But verse 9, the idolater, the hypocrite, is the one that's going to deny me before men. He shall be denied before the angels of God. So, he goes on now in verse 11 to say, When they bring you into the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take no thought how or what thing you will answer or what you shall say. For the Holy Spirit shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. So again, all of this is in the context of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Make sure that God truly is first and we're not hypocrites. And then no matter who we're brought before, this fearlessness will be there because God is first. And we're not, oh no, this could never happen to me. And uh, Get behind me, Satan. God's will is God's will. I'm in God's hands. And he says here in verse 54 of Luke 12, And he said also to the people, When you see a cloud rise out of the west, right away you say, There comes a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, There will be heat. And it comes to pass. You hypocrites, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And now he's showing the disciples that hypocrisy. That you know from certain signs what's going to happen. You hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you do not discern this time? So if we are immersed in God's word, we will not be hypocrites. And we will be able to discern the time. And we will be ready for it. But because they are idolaters and they want to put themselves first and they want to hold on to what they have, they are denying the signs and what is going to come to pass. Let's continue this view now in chapter 13. He's, it's the same teaching. He hasn't, he hasn't shifted to another topic. The teaching to the disciples is to be very careful about the leaven of the Pharisees getting into your heart and you becoming hypocrites, worshiping yourself over God. In Luke 13 and verse 1, there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they came to sacrifice to God, and the blood of the animals, Pilate mixed their blood with the blood of the animals. And Jesus, so they're telling him about it, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Jesus answering said unto them, do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you, no. But except you repent. So on the outside, these people were seeming very righteous. They're pointing at these people who have suffered as if something obviously was wrong with their spiritual lives, but not us. And God is saying, you hypocrites. I tell you, no. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. I'm not buying it. So remember in chapter 12, all of these multitudes came around. And that's when he began to say to the disciples, beware of the leaven. In other words, all of these people are full of hypocrisy. They say they want to follow me. Their God is their, themselves. 
And so he's telling them all now, look, don't think that you're special and somehow they're evil. You're all evil. And unless you all repent, you're all going to perish the same way. Drop down to verse 15. When he does the healing, the leader of the synagogue uh, contradicts him to say that he's working on the Sabbath and he should honor God by not working on the Sabbath. And in verse 15, the Lord then answered him and said, You hypocrite. Same topic. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And now he's exposing these different forms of hypocrisy to the disciples, showing them what to beware of. You hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to the watering? And then he goes on to say, like, I'm just loosing this daughter of Abraham from her burden. And yet you, for your selfish reasons, because you worship yourself, so for economic gain for yourself, you'll look after your animals on the Sabbath. But I can't look after a daughter of Abraham. Luke 13, verse 18. Now he starts this parable. It's not a different topic. The whole time he's teaching his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And now he's going to talk even further on this topic. Then said he, what is the kingdom of God like? And where unto shall I resemble it? So how do I, how do I get this across to you so that you can understand what the kingdom of God is like? Okay, let me try this. It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden. And it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in it, in the branches of it. So very clearly he's speaking of himself. That the kingdom of God is going to start with the smallest possible start. That he came from heaven and he was thrown into Judah, into the garden of the Lord. And all of these people are rebellious. All of them have rejected God's word. And it's going to start with this very humble beginning. Christ as a man, a faithful Israelite. And that's where it grows. And then ultimately, the fowls of the air can benefit from it. So that's what the kingdom of God is like. Now, in the context of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, he goes on to say, and again he said, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven. So first it's like a mustard seed. Now it's like leaven. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Well, the kingdom of God is like leaven which a woman took. So first a man takes the mustard seed and throws it into his garden, and it grows from that humble beginning into this mighty tree. Now a woman takes leaven and hides it in three measures of meal till the whole thing was leavened. He's teaching the same leaven. Leaven is not suddenly some righteous thing. He's showing us the woman is Satan's false religion. There are three measures of meal. Israel, Judah, the Gentiles. And all of them get corrupted by hypocrisy. 
by idolatry. They're all seduced by putting themselves first instead of God first. So by showing us these two parables, we see these contradictory forces, and this is what the kingdom of God is like. On the one hand, we have God calling true disciples and building out his church, building out the the kingdom with true servants. And on the other hand, we have a contradictory force with Satan deceiving, coming and hiding and putting the leaven in every measure of meal. And then the leaven grows. And this is why God is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, because it's going to overtake everything that God tries to do Satan is trying to take these same people and deceive them. But there's going to be a faithful few, starting from the mustard seed, that that's where the kingdom of God will ultimately be successful. So verse 23, uh, verse 22, and he went through the cities and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Jerusalem where he will be slaughtered, but he's teaching and, and the disciples are learning how to be in that mustard seed or from based in the mustard seed. Now, verse 23, the disciples get this. They understand what he's saying because if leaven is suddenly a good thing, then it means that everybody's going to be saved. It's so good that the woman comes and she sneaks a bit of leaven in each meal and then the whole thing is leavened. Wonderful. Nothing to do here. Everybody's going to be saved. But they understood, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's hypocrisy. On the one hand, we have the mustard seed, but on the other, we have the leaven taking over. So then what did the, how do the disciples process this? Verse 23, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? He got it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So when the leaven takes over all three measures of meal, Like, will anybody be saved? Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, because of these two contradictory forces, the force from the mustard seed and the force from the leaven, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Beware of the leaven. And when once the master of the house is risen up, and has shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. So this warning, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, has consequences. And he is really warning them, take me seriously, because this is what's going to happen. You'll say, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in your presence. And you taught in our streets, but the woman came and she sowed leaven, and you weren't careful, and the leaven took over. So the fact that you ate with me, okay, that's nice, but you should have, you should have been more careful. But he shall say unto you, I tell you, I know you not from where you came. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. So this is why this is what the kingdom of God is like, that the leaven is is very powerful. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and the south. 
and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. So there's going to be this gathering from the four corners of the earth while these people in Jerusalem will be shut out. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. So these people who heard from Christ first, they're going to be last. And the people that hear from Christ last, they will be first. And there's going to be gathering from the four corners of the earth. Okay, with all of that in mind now, let's go back to Matthew 24. Everybody's with me so far? Yes? So God has a specific piece of land that he cares for. And from the beginning, he declares what the outcome of that land will be, that his people will dwell in this land, but they will be punished first. But his heart is in this land. And we see that David, a man after God's own heart, his heart was in this land. And, and it was above his chief joy. And then we see that Christ, in resisting the devil, resists the devil because he has the word of God is intimately in his heart. So whatever the devil comes at him with, he knows the will of God. Even if the devil quotes scripture, because he understands the whole counsel of scripture, he can then put the devil down. We have to be the same way. The devil is going to come at us. With the same leaven, the woman comes and she sows the leaven in all three measures of meal. So it doesn't matter which measure of meal we're in, we have to face this leaven. The only way we can be successful in not falling victim to this leaven is if we have the word of God. And if we have the word of God, we are not first. We are not most important. God's will is. And anybody or anything that comes to us and says, you should never be offended. You should never be persecuted. You should never be killed. We say, get behind me, Satan. Because you savor the things of men and not the things of God. If it is God's will, like Joseph, that we be persecuted so that God can move us from one place to another and put us in another position, let God's will be done. If it's God's will that we be sacrificed like, cross, like Christ, let us pick up our cross and carry it. Because all we want is what God wants. We want God's will to be done. So now with this understanding that we have to beware of this leaven that wants us to be first and wants us to be only, Matthew 24, verse 22. He says, he begins this chapter by saying, do not be deceived. But here in verse 22, he says, except those days should be shortened. These are the days when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. And the armies are moving into Jerusalem and there's wholesale slaughter. He says, except those days should be shortened. There should no flesh be saved. Speaking of flesh in Jerusalem. Because the, the prophecy is against Jerusalem and Judah. So it's not that no flesh on the earth would be saved. It's that the people of the earth are, are, are all ganging up on Judah. And if God did not step in so that they can say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then they would all be wiped out. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, that's not you. And that's not me. 
I know I told you earlier that nothing important happened in the world until I was born. And that everything from this point on revolves around me. But that's delusion. But because I have that mindset, surely I'm the elect. And because of me, God is going to step in and make sure that this doesn't happen. That's not what the scripture is saying. God has recruited us to help him with his will. And his will revolves around Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is going to be surrounded with armies. And Zechariah 12 and 14 show us the armies are going to move in and they're going to slaughter the people of Israel. And if God did not step in, no flesh would be saved alive. But Isaiah tells us that he says to his people, you worm, you're completely defenseless, I will help you. So the elect are the physical people of Judah and Israel. For the elect's sake, because God will be the God of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel, so there must be an Israel. So for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. In another place, he says to Israel, I'm not doing this for your sake, even though here it says for your sake, but for my name's sake. That's why I do this, that my name will not be blasphemed. I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm going to show the whole world that I'm in Israel. For the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then, listen to, so he says, don't be deceived. He starts the chapter by saying, don't be deceived. Now he shows us the deception. Then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or there, don't believe it. And the reason you won't believe it is because you understand the grand narrative. You understand how much Jerusalem means to God, that he cares for this piece of real estate. And that when he returns, he's returning to establish that piece of real estate. So if anybody tells us that Christ has returned and he's in New York or he's in Toronto or he's in the desert, we're like, what? Wait, wait, wait what? Because we understand from the beginning, God said what the end was going to be. So now that we're in the end, we already know the end because we go to the beginning. And from Torah, from Genesis, from Exodus, from Numbers, from Deuteronomy, we understand what the plan of God is and where his focus is. So now that we're in the end, he can't fool us. He's the first and the last. Nothing has changed. So if anybody comes and says, oh, here is Christ, or there, don't believe it. So he's saying this, verse 23. In the context of chapter 23, where he declares curses upon Jerusalem, that all the blood of the prophets are going to be on the head of Jerusalem, and that Jerusalem must be desolate. But he ends the chapter by saying, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there's going to be a conversion, and they're going to acknowledge Jesus Christ. And so that's when he returns. So don't believe it if somebody says he's going, to, he's going to return somewhere else. For there shall arise false Christ. He starts the chapter by saying, don't be deceived. And now he's telling us there's going to be false Christs and false prophets. And they shall show great signs and wonders. But we have the word of God. 
So it doesn't matter what the signs and wonders are. If they don't conform to the word of God, they're simply not true. Miracle aside, notwithstanding. In so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And I believe this is where we are. That those who are first fruits, who are given the Holy Spirit, who are to be helpers of God in bringing about his will, that if it were possible with all these signs and miracles and wonders, even we could be swept up in it. He says, behold, I have told you before. I'm the first and the last. And everything that I've told you before conforms with the Torah. Because he came, he could quote Deuteronomy like this. So he quoted Isaiah like this. He's the first and the last. So from the beginning, he's able to declare what's going to happen in the end. So he's told us beforehand. Therefore, so here's, here's how we avoid the deception. Therefore, if they, that is these false teachers, shall say unto you, the very elect, behold, he is in the desert. What is our response to the desert people who say that Christ has come to us? He's here now. We're like, what? What? From the beginning, he declared that Jerusalem is for his people. From the beginning, he said, I'm going to punish these people. They're going to be desolate. I'm going to raise up the enemies around them to destroy them. But then I'm going to save them. So what do you mean he's in the desert? We, do you think we don't know the narrative? So it's by knowing the narrative Jerusalem must get a spanking, but then she'll be comforted. So he comes out of chapter 23 declaring the spanking and comes into chapter 24 saying, don't be deceived. I have not forsaken Jerusalem. It's going to look like it. And the whole world is going to change in such a way that everybody is against the Jews. And nobody believes that they have a right to the land. And somebody's going to comfort them and say, good news for you. Your God reigns. Your God is coming to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And you will be the head nation. So when these people in the desert say, come to Mecca, because he's here. We're like, no, sorry. Doesn't fit. Don't go forth. Don't fall. The whole world is going to go after them. You don't do that. Behold, he's in the secret chambers. He's in the Kaaba. Don't believe it for a minute. Because this is how I'm going to return. As the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, this is the way the coming of the Son of Man shall be. He's coming with great power. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. So he's going to, it's going to be obvious that he's going to gather his people when he returns. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. So this is the time of his return. And then shall appear the sign of the Son and man in heaven. So he's told us all this beforehand. I don't know, maybe, maybe the Bible will be illegal. And we won't have access to these scriptures anymore. Because I'm trying to figure out how do we fall for them saying he's in the desert. When it, he tells us very clearly here, he's, that's not how he's going to return. So maybe we have to be memorizing these scriptures because they might be taken away from us. 
somehow people are going to fall for it. But we know that this is not the case. He says here, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. Same thing it says in Revelation 1, verse 7, I believe. That when he appears, all the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. But even those who pierced him will see him. They're not wailing. Those who pierced him will acknowledge him. But the rest of the tribes of the earth will wail. So he says here, even so shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So they had the upper hand. All the nations of the earth thought that they were, it's going to go their way. And they didn't understand. The, the creator of the universe allowed this to happen so that Jerusalem could be punished. But once she's punished, then God is going to stop it. And they're going to repent with a wholehearted repentance. And then God is going to establish them as the head nation. And we, the first fruits, are going to help in that process. We're going to help put down all these rebellious nations. And we're going to help to prop up the people of God. Notice in verse 31. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. So that's what Christ said to them, beware of the leaven, and you're going to be shut out if you don't get rid of this leaven. But my people are going to be gathered from the four corners of the earth, and they're going to be set up as the head nation. Now he says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise you, don't be hypocrites. Don't be like the people who say, oh, there's a south wind blowing. It's going to be warm. And then that happens. Oh, there's a west wind blowing. There's going to be rain. And then they can't discern the time. He's saying to us, don't be like that. He says, when you see, you, you know that when a fig tree is tender and healthy and young, when it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is coming. In the same way, you... When you shall see all these things, know that it is near. It. What is it? We have to know what it is. It's the resolution of God's plan. It's near. That's what we're looking for. <clears throat> so anybody who comes to us with some false God, with a false plan, the challenge that God puts down in Isaiah is, bring your God, bring your scripture, and show us what's going to happen in the future, in detail, because that's what God does, because he's the only one that can do this. Now that the elect is Israel, let's see this in Isaiah 45, <coughs> as we finish up here. Excuse me. Isaiah 45. And verse 4, who is the elect? Who's the elect? Isaiah 45 and verse 4, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect. 
So we don't have to worry. Who's the elect? The Bible tells us who the elect is. Israel is my elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you. Israel prevailed with God, though you have not known me. So they don't know who God is, but God knows who they are. And when he returns, he's going to gather them from the four corners of the earth and put them in the land. And the whole earth is going to acknowledge God, the God of Israel is the true God. Let's conclude, brethren, in Matthew 24. <clears throat> From Deuteronomy, the warning to God's people is to take heed. Take heed. Beware of deception. And the way to beware of that deception is to cling to the word of God and to have the whole counsel of God. That when Satan comes with one scripture, we're saying, yeah, but it's written again. We know the whole story. And so we mustn't forget the whole story. And so beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's not put ourselves front and center in everything. Let's just back off for a minute. Read the Bible. What is this all about? What is the story? Where do we fit in? And then let's do what God asks us to do. Matthew 24, we'll conclude here, after this scathing rebuke in chapter 23, after this scathing judgment upon, upon Jerusalem in Matthew 23, and after saying there will be repentance, that despite the fact that Jerusalem will be desolate, there will be repentance. Because they will say, blessed is he. Oh, finally, he's coming. They will acknowledge him. <coughs> Excuse me. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, but the tribe of Judah will acknowledge him. After saying all of that, he says in verse 1, Jesus then went out and left the temple. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, don't you see all these things? Truly I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Same thing he said in Luke 12. Do you think that what happened to those people that the tower fell on, or when Pilate mingled their sacrifice with their own blood, that they were somehow more evil than anybody else? No. Unless you repent, excuse me, you will all perish and so Christ understands the story what's going to happen he says as he sat down on the Mount of Olives his disciples came to him privately I wonder if I can just get some more water please thanks They came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. And what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? Thanks so much. Thanks. So they're just bewildered by all of this. There's the judgment on Jerusalem. There's the repentance of Jerusalem. There's the destruction of the temple. And there's his return. And they're like, when is all of this going to happen? And he says to them, take heed.
that no man deceive you. First words out of his mouth. This is going to be so bad that you will believe that God has forsaken Jerusalem. Don't believe it for a minute. Make sure you have the whole story, the grand narrative, because this fits into the narrative. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And the reason that they'll be successful, I believe, is the story that they're spinning is you're important. This is all about you, how wonderful you are. And because we like that story, we'll go with it. Many shall come in my name, saying I am Christ, and shall deceive many. So he goes on then to explain all these things that have to happen as part of the story, part of the narrative. And then in verse 11, many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. So this is a very, very important warning for us. Let's not have the view that, oh, we could not be deceived. When Christ is warning so earnestly and repeatedly, take heed that you be not deceived. So let us take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.